Hello and welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Matt Bosnagel, filling in for Spencer Gray as the host and bringing in the ever-capable, the genius intellect of uh, Sir Addison Lubert here in The Gray Report Studios. And um, I, I think we've got a really great show today. We are covering an article by Moody's about the survive until 25 the uh extended pretend the uh the things and conditions and participants of this waiting game in commercial real estate um we're also going to be covering a globe street article and institutional investor investor article to that effect talking about the debt that's happening in the office market the uh the multifamily market specifically and the kinds of mechanisms and organizations and um strategies that that borrowers and lenders are using to uh, meet the needs of a changed lending market for commercial real estate and really for businesses in general. From there, we'll go over a bunch of reports on the state of the multifamily market from RealPage, Yardy Matrix, Apartment List, all three of them um, giving us a pretty accurate view and all coming together, really, um, talking about how uh, rent is a little bit flat, um, but there is some optimism for the far future well maybe a year from now things will, things will get better but it's going to be a bumpy road till 24 is over <laughs> yes thank you so if you are a multifamily investor if you are just interested in multifamily or if you are an industry insider we have something for all of you and each and every one of you uh, a piece of information that will be valuable important and will probably make you a little bit more successful in the coming years this is not investment advice but it is going to be a great show about the multifamily market real estate and the economy this is the gray report All right, welcome back to The Gray Report. This is Matt Bossongle, and I'm bringing in to the studio today, um, we are fortunate to have Addison Lubert. He is, uh, like I think I've alluded to, his genius intellect and really the wisdom of uh, like a wise beyond your years, like an old soul. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard yourself described as an old soul? No, I think you're just building up anticipation just so you don't uh so people don't log off yeah 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 that's right on this episode (laughs) well that's fine it it, it will take a a little different character it may not um be the exact same as spencer but we'll try to bring our own flair to it i think there's a a chemistry and an atmosphere here that uh that can't be replicated it's always different um no matter who's the guest but uh when you're here uh, i think that i i I think i get a little more a little less controlled but a little more nervous like i'm i'm scared of what i might be capable of so that's what happens when Spencer is not in the room. I do have a guide, though. I do have some notes, and there was some really great news that happened uh, this week that we can talk about. So it's not always going to be like free form, throw whatever, you know, whatever we've got at the wall. We do have some structure here, but I do have a question that I warned you about before, and I'm very curious about is, um, it, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about oh, we're heading into to the end of 2023. 2024 is right around the corner. Everything, all year, everyone's talking about how people are waiting. You know, I alluded to that when we were talking about what the, uh, you know, the CRE waiting game that, that that's going on for borrowers and for lenders. And uh, are they still waiting? Are we going to wait? Are we see? Are we going to see more transactions as the when the year's closed for Q4 compared to Q3, Q2, or Q1? Or is or has there really been a slowdown? And do you really expect things? To really be slow in you know as as December rolls on into so I don't I don't officially know how it it is I think 
uh, the what comes to mind for me is a lot of deals are when they say uh, trans transactions when they list when they're done they're yeah. listed as like when they're obviously when they're they're closed upon and so you have a lot of people that are transacting on stuff I'd say probably post July fourth in a normal year it seems that a lot of deal volume is done from post July fourth really till around Labor Day weekend uh, afterwards might see some stuff come on to market in October, but people are really closing on deals, doing the due diligence process, and they're trying to get it done uh, before years close. Mm-hmm. So I think you're already going to see a lot of Q4 stuff. You're going to see the stats filter that way just because that's when people close. Mm-hmm. So to say this year, I don't think it'll be the same in terms of that transaction situation because there at times seemed to be a, a more of a slowdown, at least from deals that I was seeing come across uh, my desk on market. Mm-hmm. It seemed like there's definitely a uh, slowdown in the March, April, May, June, July timeframe. Yeah. Yeah. But with that being said, there's also a lot of deals that have been on market that have come across my desk in the October, November, December timeframe mm-hmm. where... I'm not really used to seeing that in hmm. my limited experience. So with that long drawn out answer, no, I don't think you're going to see as much volume in quarter four, but I think it's going to be delayed mm-hmm. because people are in Q4 seeing deals come across their desk. And so who knows? I don't I don't know how long the process is going to go for a lot of folks. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, we've been a part of deals that have taken from the time that we... We're on the PSA negotiation to when we closed on the deal have taken a, a really long time, multiple months, you know, going across quarters. So for all we know, next year could be, it could be a, a, certainly a higher uh, transaction volume in quarter one mm-hmm. or into quarter two than normal. Yeah. Um, but no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect a, a pretty high Q4 here just because there wasn't as didn't at least to me it didn't seem like there was as much activity going on. Yeah, like in the few months back when things should have started, you didn't see. Right. Yeah. 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 No that that makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, it was it was either at or near. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the 10 year Treasury was at or near five percent. Uh, you know, a couple months ago. It seems that it seems that long, um, but it, it it certainly doesn't seem like things can get started and finished in a month in a month's time um you know starting here from early december onto the end of the year but uh you know maybe there's a motivated buyer i did want to note that we have this it's from costar it is the sales volume and market price per unit now i'm really more focused on the sales volume and really more as a relative number i'm not sure if these are like perfect especially the q4 numbers is is a projection and an estimate and right now they have it at about half the volume maybe a little less than q3 so q4 sales transactions were about half of q3 now i wonder if things will get adjusted and we'll see a q4 a little bit higher than q3 but not dramatically so and ultimately i really wanted to get this the numbers for the fourth quarter of a multifamily sales it because i want to be able to look at this whole year and say wow you know it was about half as much sales activity as it would have been if it was a normal year and i'm talking about like pre-pandemic like if it was 2019 it's about half of the sales volume um in 2023 so you know go back going back four years pre-pandemic that's what it would have been and probably even less than half considering with you know like inflation and all that kind of stuff but 
I uh, I am digressing a little bit. I do kind of agree with you, or at least, you know, from my perspective of, uh, you know, looking at these like research articles and reports and stuff and less like specific on the ground experience like that, that you're into. Um, it doesn't seem like I'm hearing a lot of sales. I'm hearing uh, people really re- ready to jump in and, and acquire stuff. It is a waiting game, um, a waiting game, a lot on, on sellers that are trying to wait for, you know, trying to wait for more favorable, uh, a more favorable environment where where they can sell for a higher price and a lot for for buyers that aren't you know aren't willing to to bite at at such high interest rates too so it's it's really depressing on both sides um sad but also lower <laughs> the dual meaning of the word depressed <laughs> but um but that being said and you know we know we noted this for the past couple of weeks is uh, it is survive till 25 it's a great little rhyme um but it, it also it also reflects a very real conditions in that uh we are seeing better demand or at least more healthy demands not falling off a cliff for multifamily uh, among multifamily renters and it is this short-term supply shock that we're seeing um, that will play out as 2024 progresses but it's a very finite thing and um and it's never been more clear uh that like okay the sun is shining behind these clouds but we just have to wait for them to pass the reality of it you know the, the kind of negative side w- would be to to talk about maturities and the people that are facing more acute and pressing threats, the people that may not, you know, even if they don't have a maturity approaching or that has already expired, um, some multifamily borrowers just may not be, may not have had the business plan to allow them to survive in a situation where rents aren't increasing at like maybe even like 5%, you know, the flat, flat rents is going to, is really hurting them. And another, you know, context that I noted as I wrote the, uh, the newsletter last night was, uh, you know, it's, it's budget time, or it seems like it, it seems like it a great cap. <laughs> it's it is budget time and a lot of companies are seeing their whole year of expenses and income they're really kind of taking a look at it and they're taking stock of things and i don't think that that's going to lead to a lot of like dramatic revelations but it will bring some issues to the forefront perhaps that will nudge people in one direction or, or the other it will probably remind people oh man these expenses are a lot and we didn't have uh the rent growth that we had this year like we did in 2022 there's actually net uh you know there were for the year it was net there was net positive rent growth at a decent a decent amount now that that second half yes it was it was declining um but there was enough gr- rent growth in the first half of 2022 such that the expense growth that was incurred there due, due to inflation, um, that was, you know, buoyed up, supported, or, or at least allowed the balance sheet to even out a little bit by the by the rent growth that happened in 2022. Not so in 2023. There's expenses, but there is, but uh, rent growth, the income side, is is hurting. Um, it's either flat or, you know, in some cases, like in the Midwest, there's, there's some Midwestern markets, Indianapolis being one of them, have like two, two and a half percent rent growth, which is great compared to essentially zero we'll see in uh in the rent growths or in the rent reports that we have from those three you know from yardy real page and apartment list they all have it's all about rent rent growth about zero and that and that's probably what what we're going to be at for the year so as a renter that's great news i i and that's the thing is like and and i it's funny how <laughs> apartment list frames it too because i think they know that people the investment companies and asset holders are, are reading their reports a little bit so they kind of catch us like well you know renters are going to have a easy time now it's bad on the return side and it's but yeah we ignore the fact 
that uh, it makes it a lot easier for renters. And um, and we are getting to a point in real pay. I forget if it was real page or apartment list that notes this. Um, we're getting to a point where wage growth is outpacing rent growth so much that the previous jump in rent growth that it, you know it's kind of evening out it's it's making up for those previous jumps that we've had that we saw in 2021 and, and early 2022 mm-hmm. so that's that's really good news i think that the also on the home buying side the fact that it, the costs for home ownership are so much more than rent that's got to contribute and lead some people to renting i think it is uh there's plenty of in factors that would lead to to greater demand, um, but supply is is decades high or, or generational highs of new apartment supply. So that's what it's kind of contending with. And in partially, you know, these this wage growth and all these kind of influences that would increase demand, all of these things, the, they're probably are largely what has helped the apartment industry industry avoid you know a massive crisis due to oversupply in 2023 and probably you know things will pick up in terms of like asset performances for uh, for apartments in 2024 um but it's largely due to a lot of positive things that are going on in the background it's just hard not to look at that that flat or lower rent growth number and not be a little bit depressed it's never fun to for for an fun. investor sorry not for a renter for fun but never wise to just talk about what you hear in the news over actual data but even had the interest rates not dropped i'm not entirely sure we would have seen over uh, a meaningful amount of oversupply across the board Mm -hmm. all the news coming out of cities like los angeles new york chicago there's you know there might be an increase in supply but in plenty of these places it's still nowhere near enough yeah so yeah and, and also i think um you know, your smaller markets. I know we've seen a little bit in Bloomington where newer supply is, has caused us to kind of look at some projections differently, but I don't think um, really any of that is, I don't think it has affected any big markets or nothing that comes to mind. And also yeah. I think given where the rate increases, I think if we fast forward probably another three or four years, we'll see rent growth going up because of a huge lack of supply. Well, yeah, and that is that is the story for, you know, um, this maybe second half of 2025 into 2026 yeah. is like, okay, the high rates now are going to mean less supply than going um, going forward, you know, two years from now or something. Um, I, do, I, I do think that it is worth I, I just wanted to remind people about the the positive factors for for rent growth and how and how much demand could really be sitting behind all of this like the flatter numbers that you see and um and just in sheer numbers remind people about how much there was built in the apartment industry in the past year. I'm not sure that there was a year that uh, in which we built more apartments that uh, CoStar has listed here. I'm going to try and pull up real time some some numbers behind the uh, deliveries on CoStar. And now here I'm just scrolling right down here. I have it. Okay. So you can see that and now, listeners, you'll have to suffer through my description here, but in Q2 and Q3 of 2023, we had um, 156,000 deliveries, just about, um, and 151 for Q3. Now, that number is higher than any other quarter 
on record here, <laughs> dramatically so. The other, the only one that comes close maybe would was in Q3 of 2020 when there were 124, but it just goes steadily down from there. It is looking like a whole lot of apartments are coming online now. I'm going to look at see how far back it goes, and it's. I mean, also, that's, that's largest since 2000. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, see, in charts like this, it's like, well, naturally, population growth, you're going to see more deliveries because the, the number of people are, are increasing. Um, but it was it was a big jump afterwards. And I think it's also and now this may just be CoStar always has their projections kind of revert to the mean. But CoStar has almost as much or more dramatic as the run up in deliveries that we saw in 2023 is how steeply they drop off in um, the following years. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't even have that window shared here. Now you can see the dramatic run up and drop off on the YouTube video. I think I described it pretty well though, right? Anyways, a lot built in 23. Some people say, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, there are a few projections that have 20, 24 as even more apartments being built. I think one of them is apartment list is projecting that and we'll cover that in a second here um, are projecting even more apartments built next year than this year. I tend to think that it's going to be slightly less than 24 and then ever, you know, it's just going to gradually kind of gradually decrease rather than than drop off dramatically like it is in this co-star chart. I don't necessarily disagree. One thing that I guess I could see 2024 being different or maybe having uh, outperforming expectations is not, I don't know if this is more of a, just sort of a time bias of, I started paying attention to it at a certain time, but it seems like majority of people that are, when it comes to housing supply, uh, especially apartment supply, it seems like more and more people are behind the backing of not only do we need to build more units, mm -hmm. but it seems like there's an ever-growing push of like enough with these stupid zoning laws. Yeah, yeah. If 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 uh, an apartment complex can be supported, build it. And I could kind of see how. And I, I don't. By no means am I saying we're going to see a repeat of uh, of the the high quarters that you uh, showed in twenty three. Mm -hmm. But I could I could see that situation where as as more uh, public frustration and outcry for adequate housing supply continues, especially with regards to I feel like now more than ever people are are starting to know and understand yeah. that it's it's not it's not some crazy factor behind the lack of supply other than you know what the financing situation is and, mm -hmm. and some of these rather dumb zoning laws. Yeah. Um, and as long as I think that public pushes around and you have on uh, certain cities, certain politicians running on it, uh, I, that's how I could see the new construction situation staying bullish, but I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with your original point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it will be interesting. And I talked about this, I think this was last, last week, uh, seeing how the builders are going to react to not just the different interest rates, but like when they see rent growth flat, they're not going to go into that market. They'll go into the markets where rent growth is up and, and they'll, you know, they're not going to build an apartment if it's not going to get filled up with people. Um, they're taking on a lot of risk. And I wonder, you know, they've got to be able to look to one and a half, two years in the future. And, uh, and I wonder how 
quickly they will adapt or or how they're speculating on the future of the apartment market. Because, because and this is what I keep thinking about, I, I mentioned this in passing, and we learned about it in 2020, is the 10-year outlook when you're when you're thinking about the apartment market, 10-year outlook for population growth is, is not as great as the five-year outlook. Five-year outlook, very positive. But um, I, there's going to be some adjustment that is made unless population growth really kicks back up. The demographics are not in the favor of the apartment market on like a 10 and 20 year level. Now, uh, all this is it, the caveat is like this is probably a marginal effect that we'll have, um, but it will be a continuous drag. And um, and obviously it's a market by market situation when you're, when you're talking about, you know, whether population is going to grow or not. I don't um, I don't necessarily think developers are going to look at any place that has stagnating or negative rent growth and not yeah. be interested. I think anyone that's experienced it, anyone that's done it enough can, they've probably seen cycles where, okay, for yeah. whatever reason in Indianapolis during this period, there was negative rent growth. I think- Well, and they might look in two years and they say, well, yeah, I know it's flat now, but look at, but if you look at job growth and economic growth in the area, then it makes sense to buy. Like there's, it's not just rent growth that's a factor, but I am very curious about what, you know, what kind of decisions are going to be, are going to be made, you know, five years down the line, how, uh, how they may, may be affected by supply, by population growth, by all these trends that are still up in the air. I think more of it's going to have to do with uh, more so land costs and construction. Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't, I mean, no, I, I think that that's, that's probably true. And like I said, like population growth, it's, it is so, you know, very, it's variable by market and it's less of a, it's, it's a tiny change. Whereas we're talking about like, well, the cost of land could really go up and down um, and really make or break rather than like a slow tick up and point something of a percent of population growth. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Let's move on to the actual meat of this report, which is sometimes we talk about news articles. Um, I think I was referencing them, but uh, but I have a specific one list here. It comes from Moody's and it is uh, timing out the, the CRE waiting game. The quote here that I'm going to use to enter into this is everyone's eyes are turned to the Fed as the market awaits their next move. That's where we are right now. The quote's done. <laughs> That's where we are right now. That's where I'm saying that. Awaits is the big word here. Um, uh, not a big action or movement either way by anyone yet. They're just waiting it out. I feel like there's a lot of nervous energy behind that waiting. I feel like people are waiting when they'd rather not be waiting. Um, but like they are making this conscious decision to uh, to not take action and maybe it's not make payments. I don't know if, uh, if if we're talking about low maturities, but they're looking at if we if they could just hang on. Now, the larger context that, that Moody's does get into here um, is that there's not a real uh, there's not a really horrible outlook um, when it comes to the economy. Now, there's still a chance of recession, but but in 2023, looking back, the large the the economy has been marked by gradual growth and ebbing inflation, stable employment numbers, and well, persistently low consumer sentiment. This consumer sentiment thing is is something that I've been hearing about a lot in other in other places. Um, particularly, like uh, you know, there's like economists that are you know that are looking at how how consumer you know the economy is doing great and people are spending. So why do they feel so bad? And I think that a lot of it can be explained by inflation. 
Um, I think inflation has a particularly... So what we're looking at here, I have a chart here with, with a red line that shows inflation, with a blue line that shows consumer sentiment, and with a green line that shows consumer spending. Right now, inflation is... Oh, gosh. It's coming, it's coming down, <laughs> but it is, uh, it, it's a, it's coming down very gradually. And, and the green line for consumer spending is higher relative in a relative fashion than the blue line for, for consumer sentiment. What uh, kind of what I was getting at though, is, um, people don't understand why people feel bad. I think it's because of inflation. I think it is, um, I think that there is a level at which inflation gets high enough and it's around the three or four percent range where we see this intersection uh, where that's where if you're heading on, if inflation is going up from three to four, well, that's when consumer sentiment starts to really go down. Um, when it's going down, uh, when it's, you know, when it's going back from four to three, which it currently is, then then consumer sentiment starts to pop back up. Now, uh, other places where consumer sentiment goes down, well, yeah, during recessions. But it, it is worth noting here that consumer sentiment is gradually heading, in the short term, it's heading down, but it is gradually heading up since it was at its low point in June 2022, precisely when inflation was at its high point. So, so th this is a time outside of a recession when the real mover of this bad feeling about the economy was the fact that things are expensive. And I, I also think that there's a perfectly good reason why people are spending more and feeling bad about it. It's I thought that that was like this traditional scenario of like runaway inflation or of like the mindset of an inflation of inflation is you buy and pay for the potato chips now because it's going to cost a dollar more tomorrow. So that's why they're spending is maybe the expectation of inflation is driving uh, more immediate spending. Now, again, that's like a uh, it's more of a thought experiment than anything else. But there but such as say it's like we there is a reason why people wouldn't feel great about the economy i'm not saying that it is probably lower than it should be um but it's not it's not without uh without actual reason i guess i would understand more of this if we were having this conversation in december of two, uh, 2022 than we are now yeah there's i want to i'd be curious to know for people where does Almost the acceptance of inflation or the acceptance of higher prices, where a lot of those, where that settles in. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's just particular to me and not paying attention enough. I don't know what it is, but I I can't really say that there's anything that I've looked at uh, in terms of pricing wise, be it you know, food, groceries, or whatever, mm -hmm. where I can say, you know, this is just ridiculous now with inflation. I mean, I know gas prices have gone up, but at the same time where gas prices are now, I feel like they've been that way before. No, they have. Um, uh, I'll, I'll answer. Yeah, they have. There, I mean, so there's a lot of that. What, what I'm curious to know is how long does inflation or higher pricing mm -hmm. need to be in um, the sub three level kind of well for it fades away in people's psyche well like you're talking about expenses and people doing budgets mm -hmm. at what point do how many years in a row do people need to see payroll hit a certain number post pandemic where people start to say you know what you really can't run payroll at a property more for 1400 mm -hmm. instead of being annoyed by it instead of trying to cut it in any means possible they just realize that's what it is to staff an apartment right now mm -hmm. i wonder how long that really takes for for that to hit consumer sentiment of okay this is just resetting where prices are yeah i also think a lot of it has to do with quite frankly where you're getting your news 
and what you're willing to buy as the reasons for inflation. Yeah. Because I think there's plenty of things that cause inflation this time around that I mean, there's, there's, you and I have talked about it multiple times mm-hmm. where I've been on there. There's plenty of factors that are, uh, that are around in this situation that are, I, I there's plenty more than just government spending. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think you and I have both seen the, the reports that that's circulated and filtered through the economy. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess I'm wondering what is, I, I think I know what it is. Where do some of those frustrations come through? I think I am. I think I've some of it figured out. I think that people are that people are mad about inflation, and now that inflation is more or less, you know, it's at a, a more reasonable level. It's not crazy anymore, but people, but it's still inflation. Prices are still going up. People are mad because prices aren't going back down. The only way to make people not feel better, or the only way to make feel people feel better, is if you make prices go down we want deflation not just lower inflation people don't uh, yeah it's people don't want inflation to go away people want prices to go down right yeah uh, i i totally get that i just i wonder at what point do things start to filter through of all right this is just what it is yeah um yeah because likewise this is where we get into um talking about anecdotes as opposed to evidence <laughs> last summer i Felt like we, we were hearing a lot more of people that were saying like, yeah, we were going to go on a summer vacation, but mm-hmm. it's just not feasible or yeah. some form of cutting back. This summer and into 2023, in terms of that type of consumer spending or just different lifestyle things, I felt like I didn't see or hear as much about it. Yeah. And that's where I'm very much miffed on consumer sentiment is I'm not really hearing people say that that. I'm still hearing people say groceries are expensive, or I'm still hearing people say that certain things are expensive, mm-hmm. but I don't hear people saying, yeah, they're cutting back. Um, yeah. And I'm sure in the comments section or whatever, someone's going to talk about how out of touch that is or sounds. Um, I will. I can, I can understand that. I, I don't know. I just, I don't. No, I think that, I think that it is, it is interesting. I think there's a lag period probably between how much inflation comes up and then people kind of get adjusted and, and they kind of anchor their prices at a new point. I, I think that it's probably a, a matter of years rather than months. And I also think that it is hitting different income levels differently. I, I even noted on the gray report that lower income levels are feeling this more. They have a lower sentiment because probably more of their more percentage of their income is taken up by by food and gas yeah. um, relative you know, to people with more money. Um, but even that being said, you know, the power of inflation to shape people's com- consumer sentiment, it is uh, it's worth noting how low on an absolute level it, uh, consumer sentiment is compared to the Great Recession. It's still like this is a we're right now. Consumer sentiment is about the average of what it was during the the previous or during like from 2008 to to you know late 2009. Um, Those two years, that's a we're about where we were during then, and it and it feels like things are going a little bit better than they were. Right, right. right. But that looks like if you go over to the the low point there, Mm -hmm. uh, all the way. Oh, it's definitely yeah. No, no, to the right of the screen. Mm Hmm. This this is the twenty the June twenty twenty two. It was okay. At, so it, right in twenty twenty two, it's looking like that's unless I'm completely reading this wrong. Aren't they? Is that saying it's the worst they recorded? Yes. 
Um, at least it, as is graphed on this, as it wait, and well, let, now let me expand this information. This is coming from um, the University of Michigan, and they have information now th- that's shown on the Fred website. So this okay, is uni- so University. Like that's the worst they've recorded since yeah. uh, 1980. But that that's wild that it was no, worse. Than it June. is it is worse than 1980. So it is the worst that they've and and. You can see that it's actually the graphs here, but it's not showing up on on the screen. Uh, suffice to say, I don't think that it gets any worse. This it may have been the worst consumer sentiment on record. Uh, I'll have to look that up. But we are generally see, and this is where I want to say, like, I think that there is a space to be a little bit more hopeful for that. People are getting getting generally more hopeful. I think we're on a bumpy road upward for consumer sentiment. We are on a gradual road down downward for inflation, and um, I think that we could also see a gradual uh, some gradual decreases of interest rates. Not as dramatic as some might say, but I think that we're on the road for that. So that's um that's a little bit of what of what Moody says, and they they also note um to get into so beyond the kind of larger macroeconomic picture that they provided. They talk about specifics, CRE particulars is what they call them. And um, the office market is one of them um, that is at a per- facing particular amount of challenges. <laughs> yeah. The, well, and as much as people were talking about the return to the office and all this movement from people, like uh, it's not happening at, as uh, as strongly as was anticipated. People are... I don't want to say digging in their heels, but they're staying home if they can. Yeah. Um, and there was a chart that I put in the uh, in the last weeks, or I'm sorry, last nights, this morning's really newsletter. If you're subscribed to the Great Capital newsletter, and, um, then you would have received this for free in your inbox every Thursday morning. And if you're not subscribed, go to greatcapitalllc.com slash newsletter to to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter where it has all of these great charts and great pieces of information that I'm about to talk about right now. And one of them (laughs) is a chart. You know what? That's quite the plug there. Uh, I know. I, I thought I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, one of them is a chart that shows th- how decades, maybe even you know a half a century of of a work from home progress was achieved in you know in the snap of, of of fingers. You know, right when the pandemic hit, work from home just exploded, and it's come down to about half the level that it used to be, maybe. But it's still so much. There are so many more people working from home than there used to be. And it would have taken if it was if we followed that general trend of work from home that was steadily increasing every year. If we followed that out, it would maybe be at 2050 to reach the level that we arrived at um, because of the pandemic. My larger point was people did return to the office, according you know to the to the chart that you can see if you are a subscriber of the newsletter or you can go to graycapital.com and search the gray capital blog and that it and that's available right now and i'm gonna go i'm this is on the fly this is the kind of unstructured freewheeling experience that uh that addison really evokes and uh, and i apologize to those that may have less patience with with these wild flights of fancy uh but i promise you that uh that the payoff's really great i really think the listeners of this podcast are going to enjoy you pulling up the website right now i know that's why i am that's why i'm doing it and uh it's 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 well worth it um because the visual aid that it provides is is very useful and uh, they say a picture's worth forget how many words it's worth but um, it's not worth much to listeners <laughs> but this 
<laughs> That's true. That's true. So listeners, skip ahead just a minute. I just want to show this to the viewers and uh, and we'll get into it now. All right. So probably had a lot of listeners log off when they heard. Uh, yeah. Someone's filling in for Spencer. Oh, yeah. Well, that's fine. Um, okay. So you can see here it jumped from it. So the pre-pandemic was uh, was about a, a trend of like this like 8% share of full paid days work from home. It jumped up to 61.5 when the pandemic started, you know, this kind of lockdown period. And now we are at the relatively low 30.9. But what we're seeing here is not a whole lot of lasting back to work trend. You know, really, we should be at uh, we work from home should be less than a third of what it is if we were, do, you know, if, if this was normal pre-pandemic trends, um, but it is persisted and it is likely to remain persistent. Um, that was my, you know, that's that's my argument in the nutshell and uh, on a quick advertisement for the blog and for the newsletter. Um, anyways, so continuing back to the back to podcasting. Yeah, back to podcasting. Um, so yes, Moody Moody notes the, those conditions in the office market, and also and and moves on to uh, to talk about how retail is, is actually doing okay, not perfect, but it is but it is showing some some progress. And I think the phrase was everyone was like kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, and the other shoe didn't drop for retail. Um, it's it's doing okay, it's surviving uh, maybe a lot more than multifamily, which it does single out. And and Moody saw the dip in multifamily performance really as much as any eagle-eyed viewer or listener of the gray report but really you don't have to notice uh you don't have to have like perfect vision to notice that we had flat rent growth for apartments in 2023 and ultimately moody's predicts this performance to only start picking up in the later months of 2024 and into 25 that's that makes sense to me and that's kind of what we've what we've talked about earlier in this episode. I, I do have this paragraph here where I, I wanted to note because uh, I think that this is a phrase that we will continue to hear throughout next year. This is the quote is, here's where the waiting game theme comes in. We've begun to hear the quote, survive till 25 mantra more and more. Potential sellers are waiting to make a move. Potential refi borrowers are waiting for rate declines. Borrowers with maturing loans are asking for extensions and lenders are offering workouts for more favorable markets. That's it. It really, in a nutshell, you know, we are in a strange period of intersecting sentiments and uncertainty and, and we may be on the edge of a more favorable environment around the corner. And I don't think that people, and that's why I wondered if, you know, people don't want to close because if they wait a little bit longer, maybe things is, are going to be a whole lot better for them. And, and I, it is frustrating because it seems like already December is like, well, everything's baked in for the multifamily market. You can't really do anything new. You just have to wait for the big NMHC conference in January for any, to make any multifamily decisions. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I was secretly hoping that, that some really exciting stuff was going to pop up, uh, but it doesn't look like it's going to be, you know, that much of a disruption. So um, that's, I think that's essentially where, where we're at. It, it, it may be repeating a lot of, uh, a lot of the reporting on this waiting game, but it was a, it, it was a worthwhile reminder of, of how much things have kind of changed and, and how much room I think there is for a little bit more optimism. And I forget if it was, now I need to look here because Moody's made this prediction. Yeah, this is my favorite part. I'm, I, in the Moody's piece, it talked about the Fed should be able to pull back a bit in mid 2024, flatlining around 2.5% for the Fed funds rate. 
I don't think it's going to come down that quickly. I think uh, maybe it could approach 3% by the end of the year. But really, I think that that would be a pretty aggressive uh, aggressive trajectory for the Fed to go from right now we're at five for the Fed funds rate. If we if we cut that in half in a single year's time, the only way I th- I feel like that would happen is if there is a recession. So um, I don't think that borrowers are out of uh, borrowers and lenders really. They may have longer to wait than would be uh, than would be indicated by by Moody's here. However, they may see that two point five as happening like maybe around December more than more than July. Um, I just don't see interest rates improving as because other, there is so uh, there's consumer spending and there is so much uh, so much activity in the economy that may be super uh, you know supercharged if if they start that uh, a series of regular rate cuts. I don't uh, I I don't disagree with you in the sense that I don't think we're going to see rate cuts. It's a I, soft I landing. Do you? To quite, frankly, land, I don't, quite frankly, I don't think we're going to see rate cuts. Period. Next year. Uh, oh really? I think it'll be as, and I'm holding this plane, and I want to show you how. If the rates slowly glide down, slowly, not get cut in half in a year, that's the soft landing. If you're going from five to two percent, I feel like that would be a rough landing. Now, for the listeners here, I'm holding the uh, the SR71 Blackbird model, and I'm simulating a soft landing, which is uh, which is brought about by a gradual descent, not a sharp descent. Um, this is a you know this is a very expensive aircraft. I don't think that people are going to uh, to damage the economy by landing it too quickly. Is that, is that enough of a mixed metaphor? E- Sure. I like I put a spell on you, Addison. That's really great. Um, it was a good visual aid. <laughs> I'm, I guess where I'm kind of curious to know where the Fed goes is we continue to see a lot of wage growth that we really have not seen in quite some time. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the Fed at any point, what would have to happen for the Fed to, to realize, all right, the wage growth yeah. is catching up. Um, mm-hmm. Some people that were hopefully or that we were hoping to um, have had priced out during this interest rate hike haven't they're showing some strong resiliency mm-hmm. inflation's coming down I, w- I wonder when uh that sets in i really do but i don't i i guess i can wrap my head uh and, and go back on my original comment i guess i can rack my uh, wrap my head around dropping interest rates a little bit but n- no that that's a pretty aggressive drop that i yeah i would be stunned if that yeah It'd be great for us but yeah um so uh, yeah back to kind of the from from the perspective yeah of multifamily borrowers and people looking to buy even that's great it would be amazing to to go back to those to those wonderful wonderful years but, but it's not going quickly i don't know i am wondering for the people on floating rate debt that are hurting right now mm-hmm. if that much of a drop keeps them back in this like yeah if they're if they're firmly in the okay we can hold on mode because mm-hmm. i would imagine the high interest rates are hurting them a hell of a lot more than just uh a flat need of rent growth yeah but yeah i'm wondering if that if that much of a fall would help people enough to hang on to deals or if that's still high enough that they need to they need to part yeah. ways with no, that's good. And I think that that has particular relevance for this next article from Globe Street, which is multifamily maturities weaken while office improves. They are uh, they're reporting that loan payoffs for apartment borrowers went down even as office payouts improved slightly. Um, we've covered the wall 
of multifamily loan maturities on the gray report. We even discussed when we covered it, like it's not gonna be, you know, things aren't gonna be like burning down. There's not gonna be huge, um, there's not gonna be huge levels of crisis, but there will be maybe uh, gradual um, you know, uh, pockets of opportunity and distress caused by this increase in loan maturities. However, this report seems to imply that uh, there is gonna be uh, a more measurable material effect uh, from these, from from these maturities, um, maybe more so than we had anticipated. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out the numbers here. It says, uh, the quote is, although for most of the year, the rate had easily topped 90%. This is the, the payoffs rate um, for multifamily properties. In September, it fell to 71.7. October brought it further down to 48.8%. Not only did more than half the loans in October fail to pay off, the October maturity defaults of 303 million make up over half of the $600.3 million of loans that have failed to pay off all year. So half of the loans that have failed to pay off come from this October. Do you know, I don't know if you know, but, and we did a, we did a research report that, uh, that illustrated this very thing. <laughs> and, uh, and we, then when we did some updates throughout the year, we've been following this topic of low maturities and, uh, and October's when it was supposed to hit. We said, look at October and November and lo and behold, it's here. And it looks like it's uh, it, it, it looks like there's three hundred million dollars worth of evidence that uh, that some people are hurting, and it's having a more it's having a more dramatic effect. Because I thought that you know ninety nine percent of these borrowers would be able to talk to the banks and say, just listen, listen, just give me a couple more months, I'll figure things out. Um, but to have this, but but to see it so dramatically in that in the month that that they were due. Um, is surprising to me. I felt like, and I, again, like I do not know all the ins and outs and all the rules that uh, and how strict things are and how things work in this way. But I felt like if I was a borrower and I was doing okay, that I could go to the bank and bank. You know, I get it. I'd rather you be able to pay me, period, than not, you know, uh, than not pay me at all. So I'm going to give you an extension. I mean, I'm sure that is the case, but they can't do that for everybody. Yeah, yeah, and that may illustrate the size of the problem. Maybe, maybe that that 99% or however you know, maybe the vast majority are getting extensions. But the problem's so big that it has cut the you know that that payoffs are about half as what they uh, of what they should be. Really interesting, and uh, and it is also interesting to think about how how these maturities are going to be resolved. In terms of like, uh, how are they going to get the money to get the loans? Are they if uh, are they looking for uh, for uh, for more capital? Are they going to put them for sale? And I think we're in this phase. I've mentioned it before of figuring out what to do with this debt of a non bank lending of working it out with the banks of figuring out how to get. Uh, I don't want to say like short term capital, but but definitely like band aid uh, band aid money solutions, but so that people can survive till till twenty twenty. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen. You're going to see some defaults, and I would imagine you're going to have some lenders that probably put the clamps on them and just say, "There's only the, there's only so much we can do on a workout," or mm -hmm. "There's we have so many people in the portfolio at the same position that no, we're not yeah going to give you a workout." So 
those are two situations there. The other being that you're right. I think there are going to be, I shouldn't say, I think there are going to be people that need to do rescue capital, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily in the, se- in the sense that they're in distress, um, but their plan was to do, they had a bridge loan or um, some short-term debt that they were going to have to do a refinance on. And there's going to be a gap of where they needed to get a refinance amount versus where things are actually coming out. Mm -hmm. If it's a small enough gap, they're going to go the pref equity route. They're going to do some, or if they feel like- Pref equity is in the non-bank lending. Is that kind of in that larger category of non-bank lending or is it adjacent? I would say a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, It really depends on where your source is coming from, but they're going to do that. Or if they feel comfortable, which I don't- I don't know of how many people feel comfortable doing a capital call. If they can do a capital call there mm-hmm. and get the money, they'll be, they should be fine. What I think is similar to what I was saying the last time I was on, the two things that are, are going to be interesting to look at are, are people that, when they're in a situation of distress and in the event that they default and they have to go sell, mm-hmm. how many of those deals are coming to market where it moves the needle enough that a lot of groups across the board that are in the space that we're in can tra- transact. Mm-hmm. Because if it's a small enough portion where it's larger groups that uh, have a lot of capital sitting on the sideline that they need to get out the door, it's not going to do enough on pricing to really change the market. Because there's a lot of people that are banking on that these maturities are going to hit it's a lot of people are going to be forced to sell. If that drop that heightens up the cap rate to meet where a lot of people are at in terms of struggling to get debt to purchase properties. Yeah. The other scenario that's going to be interesting is the people that need gap equity that they're finding themselves short on a refinance mm-hmm. or there's some sort of situation there within their equity is the amount of equity that they can get or raise. Is it enough to cover what they need, or is it a situation of we need to raise an additional ten million to save the deal? Yeah. And because we've seen on deals that we've taken a look at from a pref equity standpoint, what we can what we can give them and still hit returns on our end mm-hmm. is not enough to give uh, to cover what they need. So, how many of those deals are out there? Is mm-hmm. that the majority of people that are needing pref equity? Is yeah. it not? That's going to be another thing that's interesting to see. But another thing that I don't think is getting enough intrigue is what this does to equity sources moving forward. Because when you bring in PREF equity, mm-hmm. you're hurting uh, the returns and you're pushing the people that are common equity mm-hmm. further down the stack. Depending on how big you are and where your common equity sources are coming from, what does that mean? Does that mean do some of them pull out of real estate altogether? Yeah. Do they... Stop investing in you as a sponsor. Yeah, it's going to be. We were, we were talking about this in so many words, uh, like yesterday and, and earlier this week. Is like, you know, there are some investors that are going to be. I hate to mince words here, but screwed. Um, and they may not know they're screwed until two years from now, or or they or they may just be in a bad investment in are these are are these sponsors and operators that are going to be that are running this bad investment are they just going to go back out and get new investors like can they just i wonder if the investment if the investor pool is big enough where they don't care it's like well yeah this deal didn't work but we've got plenty more where that came from and so i was having that conversation with jay yesterday where I think it's going to be dependent on how many people, and it also ties into the uh, inflation conversation that you and I were having, Mm -hmm. where how many people are just, stuff's more expensive, 
I'm pissed off versus, okay, let's look at why things are expensive. There's there's government spending that was done in 2021. There's also, a, there was a supply yeah. chain issue. There was the war in Ukraine. There's stuff with uh, utilities have gone up. There's also, like it or whether people want to admit it or not, a fair amount of corporate greed that went on to push it up. How many people are looking at those causes and realizing, okay, well, there's not, in some ways, there's not a lot that can be done immediately. But how many people take a, I don't want to say a similar approach, but how many investors that are in these deals look at it and say, okay, I've invested with this group 10 times, mm-hmm. eight, seven, eight, nine times, the deal's gone well, mm-hmm. this has worked. The one time it didn't, and that's because uh, significant inflation, rose expenses, we didn't see that coming. Yeah. Or as the conversation you and I had Friday, yes, we did floating rate debt, we did do a stress test, but we thought if interest rates got to five, or we knew that if interest rates got to five and a half, we'd be in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. But we didn't think interest rates were ever going to get to, we thought they were going to get to five and a half. We thought they were going to get there three, four years down yeah. the line. Especially not when rate growth's so low. Right. Yep. And so what what does that do to investors' mindsets, yeah. I guess, moving forward? Are there enough investors that can say, at the end of the day, this is an investment you could lose money or not get the returns we mm-hmm. thought, but nine times out of 10, this has worked. Yeah. I wonder, you know, they always say that people are more apt to leave a bad review than a good review of a restaurant or whatever. I, I wonder how much of, you know, what, what is nine out of 10 good enough for investors? Could be, should be, probably. <laughs> but uh, there may be a lot of people that this is their only investment and they and they lose a lot of money based on, you know, some false, straight up false promises. There's several dramatic examples that, that we heard about earlier this fall um, of people that, that were looking for fantastic returns. And the only person that was able to tell them that they had fantastic returns was someone that may have been stretching the truth and someone that has subsequently a, a company that crashed and burned since then. Um, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that that's happening across the uh, across the market, but I am wondering what the push pull like you like you said what the push pull is from the customers of these essentially the customers of these uh, investment companies are investors and. Can they afford to make them all mad? And what's going? What is going to make them mad? You know how it, it from from my experience, <laughs> it takes a lot to get these customers and to build that relationship where they can trust you with a great deal of money. Mm-hmm. And um, and from my even even more keener experience, uh, if you don't take care of them and and like and communicate with them and and you know place them and really worry about this relationship and work hard to preserve it, then you're doing them a disservice. So I don't know if, if other, if it's like in other companies, if it's like, you know, a ship is, is slowly sinking like, Oh yeah, everything's okay. (laughs) I don't think that that, that that's actually happening. Um, But uh, I I would certainly, I would certainly be worried if I was an investor in, in some of these companies and I, I, I see these numbers and I'm not hearing from, I think that some of these sponsors aren't even, they're not, they're not calling their investors and saying, listen, we have, we have a serious challenges that we are overcoming. I, I don't know if they're, if it's even a good idea to say that. The other one that's a mess. The other thing I'm also thinking of is how many deals where I guess looking at it from a 2020 to 2030 timeline, mm-hmm. any group that is able to hold during that period and Back on wood, that yep. would be us for a few. Can you say like, yeah, you know, on your ten year hold, 
Yeah, there was an odd period where from 2021 to 2023, mm -hmm. cash flow wasn't the best. But every year after 2024, we hit expectations or yeah. we beat yeah. to show uh, people that actually there, you know, there is a roadmap of hitting your return and, that's, and the benefits of real estate. Yeah, yes. Actually putting this type of debt on the property and holding it long enough. I'm and, curious to see how that goes. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And um, just to quickly note, you know, how, how many companies are and how kind of prominent the narrative of of companies coming out to help these borrowers um, is is this article from Institutional Investor that talks about what do they call the kind of lumbering behemoths of private credit. Um, specifically, they run through Apollo and Blackstone. Apollo draws a lot of their money from um, insurance and annuities that fuel this non-bank lending system that they've got. Hey, you need money and banks will give it to you while well, I'll step in and help. Um, Blackstone takes a little bit more from individual investors, but they are essentially uh, they're stepping up to lend money in cases where the bank either can't lend them enough or or maybe has other rules that uh, that are preventing them from you know, funding their investment or for doing a refinance or for really continuing to operate. This is a, or I'm sorry, the quote here is led by alternative asset behemoths. Now, let me find the quote here so that I can highlight it. Well, I'll just read it here. Led by alternative asset behemoths like Apollo Management and Blackstone, private credit has arguably become the most transformate, the most powerful transformational force in the financial world since the 2008 economic crisis. Really powerful, transformative stuff. That's what I'd say. Uh, but I, I really dislike these kind of shapeless images of these lumbering behemoths, like uh, in, a in a much simpler way of putting it, like I think the conditions are uh, such that regulations and the market interest rates have made it so that banks can't or won't lend to out as much money as easily as before. So that's the first thing that happens. Second thing is other groups with money that don't have to follow the same rules have stepped in to, le to lend the money. And the third thing that I'm speculating on, but I'm pretty sure is true, it's going to probably cost a little more to go with the non-banks than to go with the banks. But hey, uh, you probably need the money, so th they'll take that. Uh, yeah. Maybe they won't. Maybe non-bank lending is not going to be like the the bulk of the debt that you have, but... Like you said, maybe it'll help bridge a gap. Maybe it'll plug a hole here so you don't have to make a capital call or, you know, help you survive until 25. That is what's what's kind of interesting for me is is that I, I, I don't want to get too much like rose colored glasses about the market rising up to to solve this problem. But um, it does seem like this this solution is being created. And I said this in an earlier Gray Report episode is, you know, for as much as the lender or for much as uh, as borrowers are needing this money, investors are looking for a chance to participate. Like if you're a multifamily investor and you haven't seen a lot of deals, which you probably haven't, then here's an option to get involved. It's not the same as a direct investment in a deal, but to invest in some kind of non-bank lending that that is lending to that has a lending arrangement with a multifamily sponsor, that may be a way of you know a multifamily backed investment, um, so to speak. It's a different vehicle. Um, it's it'll probably likely have a different risk return profile and it's this opportunity there that didn't exist and probably won't exist for until something starts to crack in the market but um well, right yeah. i mean that's that definitely is the benefit of the uh, if you're on the side of pref equity and you're the one that's 
doling out the equity. Yeah, yeah that is it's a great benefit because of the the small opportunities and and stuff that we've seen come through. Mm-hmm. It's given us a chance to potentially be involved in some markets that we otherwise would not have been. Yeah, um, and so you're kind of getting some interesting exposure to those markets, those opportunities, but there's also some assurance of, you know, aside from your debt, we get paid first. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do like, I'm wondering if, uh, if there is some kind of counter reaction, like the way that that article was framed was, um, was also talking about, um, I'm sh- this was the institutional investor article. Yeah. So the way that article is framed there, it almost sets up this oppositional relationship between banks and non-bank lenders. The it, it's assuming that they are kind of enemies, but but in the uh, in the headline they call them frenemies. Um, in reading, if I um, I'm hoping I'm getting the story and mm-hmm. the quote correctly, I want to say Jamie Dimon had mentioned that when you cut back on these services. There's a lot of things that banks are able to offer do that with these regulations be a lot of services that are cut. Yeah. And hmm. I, if I'm not mistaken, someone kind of shot back at him from the uh, private lender space that kind of said like, yeah, but looking at your profits, like your business is doing fine. Like, yeah. Oh, no, you can't participate in this one segment that you do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, how... How bad is it really? So I thought that was interesting. But the event eventually. that enough things go south, mm-hmm. to your point about being a customer eventually, if enough things go south, we're going to be negative. We could be negatively negatively impacted on deals moving forward of while well, we did this DSCR in the past mm-hmm. and company company policy is you're going to have to have a, a tighter DSCR requirement on yeah. these deals. Because if there's enough... If there's enough deals where they're going to need to refinance, there's a gap in between where they wanted to be and where they're shaking out on debt proceeds, then they're going to have to, if they can't get that equity to come in and, and keep things moving along, then there's the, a massive risk of, okay, they're going to have to go to the market. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be a situation of, well, okay, let's see what we can get. Maybe... We'll sell. Uh, if things aren't looking as well as we want them to, we can always go back and refinance. If they're in a situation where they have to go to market, mm-hmm. whatever the highest price is or whatever the highest price from someone that's reliable to close is, they're going to have to sell to. Yep. If that happens enough across the board and enough of them somehow manage to sell for an amount that is they're going to be short in terms of what they owe mm-hmm. to to the, the lenders... There's going to be some major issues that yeah. I'm sure the lenders are thinking, yeah, if that's the scenario that we're facing across the board, we would really love it if someone came in, provided that that extra capital, just yeah. so that hopefully if they can just if they can get by another two or three years, where mm-hmm. we're all assuming that the market's going to be better. Yeah, that's a lot better off because I have talked with a fair amount of brokers where they've they've talked with groups where, hey, we're in an interesting debt situation and by interesting I mean, like they're really screwed and they need a lot of help. Can you underwrite the deal? Mm. And brokers are underwriting, telling them what the value is. And those owners are coming back and saying, the value that you're saying my property at is what my loan is. Get that that BOV up. Mm -hmm. And so if that, assuming that that is widespread, I don't think that's anything that's just local here or just local up in Chicago or whatever. I think it's across the board. Yeah, no, they're... There's very much. I wonder. Yeah, it it just does seem like there is a 
subtext of the article where uh, where banks may be threatened by these non-bank lenders. Like, you don't want to give too much market share to them, but I still can't imagine a situation where non-bank lenders will be someone's primary source of debt. So uh, if if we maybe get to that point then, uh, there's going to be some regulation, I'm sure. And this is, this is way beyond my pay grade, yeah. way beyond my understanding. There was a lot of business practice and stuff that was going on during the financial crisis where... Mm-hmm. Obviously, through the bailout, the government determined that, hey, a bunch of these banks going under, a bunch of these banks failing is not ideal. It's going to crash money markets. It's going to crash a lot of things. I don't know if that sentiment's going to be there if, yeah. um, hey, these non-bank lenders, Stones, yeah. Blackstone's yeah. really screwed, yeah. or hey, uh, Apollo's done for. I don't, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's yeah. going to be a ripple effect. I but they like don't have the, the projections, yeah. Yeah. So no, that, I think that's a good point. I just have to move on here. But uh, I mean, what yeah, I read yeah. from that Jamie Dimon quote was very much that there. Uh, it seems it seems like the uh, the banks are pissed off that they can't be a part of. And the, some of them are forming. <laughs> it does. It, uh, yeah. No, I agree. Some of them are forming their own arms for like private uh, private lending and stuff like that. I uh, yeah. There was a there was a subtext in that article that was mainly like yeah. There's there's probably more of an antagonistic relationship than would be implied by you know the guy from Blackstone be like oh yeah it's a win 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 everyone wins like no 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 I don't I think that banks probably are are gonna want to uh, reclaim some of the territory that they lost um in the future but that's just my own all right i want to run through these really quickly so coming up here there are three very again very emphasis on quick reviews of the multifamily market in and rent growth and uh and you know what's happening in apartments right now um real page we'll start with there uh with their account and they're talking about how apartment rents have remained flat over year, year over year and show signs of leveling off in parentheses for now. So, you know, there's always, there's always room for doom and gloom, I guess. Um, it does seem like it is not going to dip into the negative for year over year rent growth um, as, as a real page measures it here. So their rent growth was 0.08% in October year over year. And then in November, it was 0.16%. So slightly improving. Um, not, you know, we're talking about thousandths of a percent, but, uh, but still, or was that hundreds of a percent? Well, yeah, whatever. Very small amounts of an increase. But I think it's meaningful that it's not in the negative because if we go or now this is, I'll just round out this real page story here. It is talking about, you know, it's a, a very much a supply story. Rents are falling in the West and South where there was a lot of supply. And um, importantly, as we have noted earlier in this show, wages continue to outpace rents. And they say November should almost certainly mark the 12th consecutive months where wage increases outpace rent increases, a trend that'll likely persist through next year. That could erase all of the rent over wage bump of 2021 and early 2022 and in turn help further widen the demand funnel. We, you know, rent is too damn high. We were hearing that before the pandemic. And we have mentioned how persistent inflation, um, you know, inflation anchors are. We want that price that we are hoping rents go back to like they were in 2019, et cetera, et cetera. It is a big story that wages have outpaced rents for so long. And if it continues to, I don't see, I think it is a recipe for uh, for increasing rents, um, but that's going to 
going to depend upon supply a little bit, but man, it is a huge factor. From what they're saying, though, I actually can you scroll up just yeah, because um, looks like they said rents are falling everywhere. Rents are falling everywhere among the top 150 metros. 41 included rent growth of more than three percent. Most of these markets are located in Midwest and Northeast regions, and uh, and among large markets, Chicago led the way at 3.6, followed by Northern New York, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Boston, Indianapolis, and St. Louis. Uh, a lot of Northeast and Midwest ones. Well, okay. So Indianapolis is in that place. Mm -hmm. Personally, that's uh, a bit of a bummer. But yeah, sorry. What did what was interesting in reading this was they said not only do they they see the wage growth over rent growth, not only do they see that going into next year, but it sounded like they weren't very bullish on rent growth in 2024 either. Yeah. And that was interesting mm -hmm. because it seems like initially when I read it, they're like, well, things, leasing activity isn't really too high right now in October, November, December, uh, and headed into the winter months, which it never is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to hear them say like, well, yeah, I mean, end of 2024, hopefully things pick up, but yeah. Uh, but I mean, by no means were they sounding the alarm of you were going to ex be experiencing massive, massive yeah. negative uh, rent growth. To but move, it was to, yeah. it was interesting to hear them kind of sound that alarm of like, yeah, yeah, twenty twenty four is gonna be kind of a letdown. And well, and the same thing, and a very similar message was uh, was conveyed by this apartment list, which has a series of seven predictions for the twenty twenty four rental market. Um, cooling rent, uh, what I think I think it was this one. They said low single digits for rent growth. Well, one of these one of these reports, either RealPage or Apartmentless, has said, uh, has said expect low single digits for rent growth next year. Um, that may be that may be true, uh, but low single digits is where rent growth normally is. So, uh, you know, if, if we get three three to four percent rent growth, that's the lower of the single digits, and that would be pretty typical for uh, you know a non. I am wondering if similar to what you had mentioned of I should say similar when you use the situation of people like better buy those damn potato chips now because yeah. it's going to get more expensive when you come back next week yeah I'm wondering if there's also something going on with renters of their renewing mm -hmm. because they're worried about things going up a ton yeah or if it's a standpoint of i don't really care about the amenities anymore like people now have put some stuff into perspective of i don't know what's going to happen in 2024 mm -hmm. so the nicest but cheapest place I can live is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. If that's enough to, uh, if that's what's going on. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think that we're, it will be remain to be seen what, what renters are going to do. Um, one of the, one of the pressures I think that apartment list does talk about in this, in this seven, uh, this, these seven re, uh, reasons or seven predictions for the, for the market is that the changing rent versus math rent versus buying math will create more long-term renters. It's so expensive to buy a home that maybe people are, yeah, I'll renew this, I'll renew this apartment rather than um, making the plunge and buying a home. Um, that's really apparent. And it's, that's going to be really hard to remove uh, as a factor. Like you know, home prices are going to have to go down significantly for that math to make sense anymore. It, yeah. It, it's just, just really kind of crazy. Now uh, I know I'm flying through this. I didn't get through all seven reasons, but you, you can find that article in the gray report newsletter. Um, if you have already subscribed to the gray 
Gray Report newsletter. Um, if you haven't subscribed to the Gray Report newsletter, you can go to greatcapitalllc.com slash newsletter and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter with all of the information, data, research, reports, little bit of commentary, not a whole lot of commentary. I get straight to the point. Lots of great points, less fluff every Thursday, free, great, perfect, awesome. On we go. All right, let's go. Let's go to the uh, to the Yardy Matrix article uh, covering similar material material as the real page and apartment list. Uh, an, another overview of the national multifamily market. Um, I just want to come up with some top line numbers now. Apartment list was I didn't I didn't note this in in their article, but they did record a negative one point one percent rent growth for the year, and um, it's a it's definitely lower than real page and Yardy Matrix. Yardy Matrix has positive 0.4%. So uh, still not uh, not that much higher than zero, but we're all hovering around zero. It's probably going to be flat for the year uh, on average. Um, notable too, uh, it shares a lot of the same markets for uh, for rent growth leaders. So they're they're all converging on a similar uh, you know a similar set of markets for in the Northeast and Midwest. They're talking about uh, you got your New York cities, your Kansas cities, your New Jersey's, Columbus, Chicago, Boston, Indianapolis. Not a sunbelt in sight in this top. Five. Um, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Ooh, you got you got to go to number nine for San Diego before you start seeing some some kind of sunbelt markets in there. But still, the the former high flyers are uh, are a little bit more subdued. But still, you know, not not out of it completely. When we're talking about short term changes, rent growth was highest in Kansas City and New York. And um, when talking about uh, lifestyle asset classes, Indianapolis had some significant month over month rent growth, but some serious declines. Um, I'm talking about like almost one and a half percent decline uh, in one month of rents in Raleigh, a full one percent in, in Seattle, Orlando, Las Vegas, Charlotte, Austin. All of those rents went down by one percent in one month. This is a winter month. This is seasonality, and uh, I'm sure that is a result of huge amounts of supply. But it's going to get a it's going to get a little bit more bumpy, and uh, only gradually improve as uh, as we get into early 2024. Right. Like we've said, um, I think that we've painted a pretty good picture of where the market's moving in general, and a pretty, uh, I, I think, a pretty stirring conversation of where of what you might expect in the economy, in the lending market, and in the multifamily market. Any kind of closing words that you had, Addison? Addison, I have delayed a uh, an extensive conversation about the use of artificial intelligence. <laughs> in the uh in the multifamily industry i uh, I, don't, I don't think we have time to talk about that i don't know if you're still interested in you know maybe four or five interested to begin with quite <laughs> frankly so uh, yeah i i did promise that last week that that we would have uh have a discussion and, and i will put that on hold but i've got a lot i have teed up with several articles um really dealing with my dissatisfaction of the term ai as this kind of catch-all word for you could just use the word computer to say everything that AI AI says. And so I'm um, looking for a little more specificity there. I think that there are lots of great tools, but uh, I think we need a new word for it because yeah. some one person's AI is another person's CRM. automatic email. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, this is, I, you and I were talking about this earlier and um, 
you know, I may or may not be using a, one of my parents as an example here, but I remember when so it was like 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. when the whole like selfie term oh, yeah. came to thing and a fair amount of people just started calling everything selfies. And yeah, I may or may not have had a parent that was like, if yeah. you take a selfie of me next to this thing, and it was like, no, it's a picture is what's <laughs> yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's very much what I feel when people just throw out AI. It's like, yeah. You know, running a formula in Excel is not AI. Yeah. This was around in 2009. This yeah. was around in 2003. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I like, I think that I'm, I trust the companies that, yeah, they may mention AI, but they're more focused on like what they're doing with it. That's all I want to know. What kind of stuff? Like, uh, there's, if you're telling me, uh, if you're making a decision and crunching numbers in ways that I don't even understand, that to me is more AI than like, okay, when X happens, I want you to do this automatically. That's, there's nothing intelligent about that. That's just a switch. You know, so I'm going to dig into that a little bit more with oh, some great examples of uh, of useful uses of AI, I think. And ones that are like, all right, this is just chat GPT with another coat of paint on it. And cool. yeah, I, I very much get a kick out of the whole like, full, you know, it's all this AI stuff here. You're not even going to be driving cars three years like, yeah yeah well, you know no one moves that fast yeah it's been a year i have also i did because it's like the year anniversary of chat gpt the kickoff of this like kind of whole conversation even though it was around before then obviously we just said that um but i it is interesting in how um and how little it's changed like ever people were freaking out you were making fun of me for freaking out about AI last year, a year from this week or whatever. It was, it sparked a lot of people's imagination. And yeah, I think it is being used a lot. I'm sure it's generating, you know, every, there's all those articles about how it's generating like half of the garbage text, copy text on any website now. And like, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's great for filler text, but like, I haven't really seen like, whoa, like this is doing something I could, I I couldn't even imagine it doing, you know, it doing or me being able to do that. Uh, I'm super interested in its ability to like so take it, a bunch of data and filter it for me. Give me an answer. But I don't see that yet. I haven't seen enough case studies that it, it, there were. So, so hold on. Yes. So what you're saying is what you thought was going to happen last year has not happened. Not, not, not like. I wanted it or not like I was hoping or fearing. Um, okay. So for those of you that are listening, if you hear a rumbling, especially in your car, that's mad fighting the urge to say Addison was right. Well, let's just say there are <laughs> shades of rightness. Uh, all right. Yeah, that's good. I, I think we can end there. Addison, it, it was my mistake for disagreeing with you. And I'll, I'll put that on the record. Um, I am adapting. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think the AI is like out of the picture. I still think it's worth tracking and obviously like learning to use it. But I also get a huge kick out of the AI experts, the people that weren't really talking about it at all. But all of a sudden a year goes by and they have some kind of PhD in something that didn't even exist 12 months yeah, from now yeah. or from a month ago yeah so i don't get uh, i don't get that like you know there's there's courses taught by people that that may or may not be uh, you know it may just be chatbot uh you know chatbot prompts this is a whole course on it now uh, again it's a tool that you that you should be able to use but we are at such a weird point where ai can mean so many things for so many different people and sometimes i feel like it means like oh yeah it's the same thing you're getting it's just a little more expensive because we know you'll pay more for AI. It's and that it's always funny seeing the AI experts or whatever, and you see their like profiles or just how their LinkedIn pages are designed. 
Oh, it's a hype cycle, and there, it, it is. There's a lot of hype men out there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I want a I want a real boring use case for for AI that uh, it doesn't it lacks the flash and substance, but it means a whole lot when it comes to you know how much money it can bring in people. Like you know, what about a factory determining uh, you know who to lay off, <laughs> who lay off, but what to keep in their inventory, or based on a bunch, uh, like I said, a bunch of criteria that they don't even know about. Like uh, you know, when the when the weather's bad, you want to buy more of this specific part because the trucks don't come in as quickly. Some correlations that we aren't thinking about that by processing that amount of data, they are able to come to. But I haven't found like everyone said like yeah, I tried to get it to read my emails and and, and like google had was ju just put pushing out a, like in a beta of some kind of like email uh, ai thing where it comes through your emails and it can answer questions or, or or draft an email based on your previous email history and uh and it wasn't so great at doing that <laughs> it was well, it was confusing sendings and recipients like it is still like i said it's conceptually great theoretically amazing but we're not there yet. As much as, and I, joke, I feel disappointed. As much as I joke about AI telling companies who to get rid of, that's probably what it will be used for. Oh, like everyone's, everyone's it going is to all the positive outcomes and everything that's going to blame. I and and just to put a cap on uh, on on a discussion that I probably have way too much. I think so much about AI is going to about its implementation and the legal framework is going to be like who is responsible for what an AI decision for an AI decision that gets made, um, whether it is like a byline of an article, uh, what, you know, so if something wrong about that article, uh, then you better attach it to a real person so they can be responsible or in an or like if an AI makes a decision for a company that costs a company a million millions of dollars are you going to blame the ai service or are you going to blame the person in that company that implemented that ai solution there's a whole lot of things when you're like and and you know i think that that oh yeah keep the human in the loop it's easy that's easier said than done i think that the worry is that people keeping the human in the loop is just going to be someone saying like yep i agree with ai i agree with ai i agree with ai and they're not making their own decisions they're just taking the easy road out which is well I think what we all would do, it's human nature. So that's going to be interesting. Starts as a cause, you, uh, <laughs> morphs into a business, ends up a racket. Ends up a racket, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's just, I I think that so much could hinge on responsibility and uh, it's just connected to a real person. Because uh, if if not, then everyone gets the easy way out. And I don't think, and then I think that makes a lot of things harder. All right. That's all. That's all I got. Uh, yeah. Thanks. And uh, stay that's tuned. It. Well, we can keep talking, but uh, I think I'm getting a little less comfortable with uh, in this room here with you. <laughs> so, uh, so I'll see you next time. Spencer will be back. And uh, again, please remember to subscribe, follow whatever, you know, whatever the terminology is. Keep uh, track of us. Leave a five-star review on five -star Apple Podcasts. Comment if you disagree or if you do agree. We want that engagement and you said value you, your opinion. You, you said you'd read the reviews on air as long as it's a five-star. Yeah, that's right. I, and I will. Thanks.